0: Now then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn to Exodus 19 again, the passage that we read. (coughs) And uh, we read in verse 1 that in the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And at the end of verse 2, we read that Israel camped there before the mountain. Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, of course, in our uh, studies in the book of Exodus, we've followed Israel Mm -hmm. um, from the point of her liberation, really, at the Passover, through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness thus far on her journey to the land of promise. And um, we've seen how God dealt with her as a people, testing her. We've seen the lessons that God taught them and the lessons which, to some degree or another, they learned, although I think we would have to say that they were very slow in learning because their tendency to murmur And to complain was a tendency that kept appearing. And even after they leave Mount Sinai, we'll see that it still appears. But at last, they've arrived uh, right down towards the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula at Mount Sinai itself. Now, their arrival at this mountain is a, a very significant time for them. It's significant for Moses personally, and that's worth mentioning, as I'll come to in a second. It's significant for Moses personally, but it's also significant for Israel or the Church of God. Now, sometimes as I speak about Israel, I'm going to use the expression Church of God. And the reason I'm going to do that is, first of all, because that's who Israel were. Uh, they were God's congregation. They were his church The second reason is because sometimes when we speak about Israel, we tend to think of another country and another people. And so we tend not to make the relationship very easily between them and us. But the moment we call them the people of God or the church of God, we understand that when God is dealing with Israel here, God is dealing with the church. As Gentiles we have been engrafted into Israel, we are the new Israel and the people of God. In fact the terms that are used here to describe Israel like special possession or uh, kingdom of priests, uh, Peter uses them of the New Testament church. So sometimes as I say I'll use church instead of Israel to remind us that God is speaking to us here that the lessons that he's teaching are being taught to us, to you and to me. So coming to Mount Sinai is significant for Moses and for the whole church. First of all for Moses, Uh, coming to Mount Sinai was significant for him because when God called him in the burning bush, remember way back in Exodus 3, Uh, God told him that he would one day, with the people, worship God at this very mountain. This was the mountain at which God called Moses. We're sometimes liable to forget that, but Moses was familiar with Mount Sinai. When he was keeping sheep for his father-in-law, he kept them in this area, and it was on the mountain that God revealed himself In the burning bush, that's when God commissioned him to go to Egypt in the first place. Now you'll remember that, rather like yourself and myself, Moses was very reluctant to do what God was calling him to do because it was a difficult thing to do, and he anticipated only failure. Of course, he had to learn, like you and me, that when God is so resourced, failure is impossible. He had to learn that, but nonetheless, he felt that he would fail. But God told him that as a sign that he was calling him, he said, you will worship me with the church on this very mountain. That was a promise that God had given him before he ever went into Egypt at all. Uh, In the words of God exactly, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign that I have sent you. Now I'm sure Moses would have rathered a sign there and then but said this will be a sign when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall serve me on this mountain. And I'm quite sure when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai here for the first time with over two million people encamped Around the mountain, I'm sure one thing he did, although it's not recorded for a second, I can be sure, we can all be sure that one thing he did was thank God for his goodness in fulfilling his promise and keeping his word. However unlikely it seemed at the time, even though God assured him that this would happen, I'm sure he still found it hard to believe. You remember how Gideon although he was given a miracle, asked for a second miracle. That's because of the difficulty we have in believing that God will do what he says he will do. But I'm sure he gave God thanks for bringing himself and the people safely to the mountain. And significantly God assures him that he will stay with him too. You'll notice in verse 9 here after Moses has gone up to the mountain for the first time, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud. Now, at the, at the point at which God says that there's no cloud, there's nothing on Mount Sinai. It's just as it ordinarily is every single day. But he says, I come, or I am coming to you in the thick cloud very shortly, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever not just believe me but believe you forever um, and I'm sure this was a, a huge encouragement to Moses you know uh, although he's arrived at the mountain and God has fulfilled his word he can't but look back and say well this task is even more difficult than I expected it to be and the, and the difficulty of the people is greater than I, I thought it would be but God is effectively saying look I've done it thus far and believe me I will do it to completion and uh, it's wonderful how God gives us his assurances like that Uh, sometimes when you're most in fact always when you're most in need of it out comes a promise from the word of God and it's applied by God to your heart and you know that God is faithful and that God is true so it was significant for Moses to arrive at the mountain but of course it was also significant for the whole church. Because Mount Sinai isn't just another stopping place on the way to the Promised Land. It's not like Refidim or Zin or Elam, um, these places where Israel had camped before. It's completely different, and we see that in two ways. First of all, the way that God spoke to Moses indicated right from the start that this mountain itself would be significant. The journey to the promised land would not bypass this mountain. They must come to Sinai. As in some sense we all must. We must come to the God of the law, the God of holiness. And again, you'll notice that the length of the stay is different. So far as they've moved from camp to camp, like I said, from Rephidim to Zin to Elam before that, all that has taken just two and a half months. We're in the third month here since they left Egypt. But the fact is that they'll be gathered around Mount Sinai for over a year. So that reminds us that there is something very important going on in Mount Sinai for all of them as individuals and for all of them collectively as the church of God the question is what is it what exactly is happening at Mount Sinai and of course the real question is what is God doing at Mount Sinai and I think we can put that like this that God is giving his people two important things two very very important things First of all, he is giving them a law to live by. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that they haven't had a law already. We know that the Ten Commandments are written in our hearts, even when we're unconverted. And they certainly knew the Ten Commandments. But here God, nonetheless, is giving them his law in a very distinctive way. And although some of these laws are designed to govern them as a nation, because from this point onwards Israel is a nation, not just families and a collection of families, but a nation. So although some of these laws are to govern them as a nation, at their core you find the Ten Commandments, which are given to them as individuals because when the commandments are all given in Exodus 20 thou shalt or thou shalt not that's you singular God doesn't address the people corporately with the commandments, well yes in one sense he does because he's talking to all of them but he says you or thou, you singular thou shalt and thou shalt not these commandments lie at the heart of God's relationship with his people. I'll say more about that uh, as we go on. But he's giving them here a law to live by. The second thing that he does is that he gives them a law to worship by. And just as the law to live by was built on the Ten Commandments, the law to worship by will be built around the tabernacle. A place of worship which they are to build, which will function as a central place of worship for all the people. Now, prior to this, they worshipped according to their families, according to their tribes. They would do so, of course, especially every Sabbath day. But from this point onwards, they will worship also in a centrally located building, which is known as the tabernacle. That tabernacle will, of course, friends, be a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every part of it, every bit of its fabric and structure is designed to show the means by which God dwells with man in his tabernacle, in his holy tabernacle, So everything in it reflects the Lord Jesus Christ, especially perhaps the priesthood, which will be consecrated here in Aaron's family, who will be dressed in a certain way, they'll appear in a certain way, everything prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ. So a law to live by and a law to worship by. And God will confirm all that with his people by entering into a special covenant with them on Mount Sinai, where he gives them all this and they respond with their wholehearted obedience. And when that's done, we'll see in Exodus 24 that Moses will offer a special sacrifice, and he'll take the blood of that sacrifice and he'll sprinkle all the people with it. Now, of course, the blood didn't reach them all in one sense, it did in another, because the symbolism is that the blood is scattered upon them all. So that's what God gives. A law to live by and a law to worship by. And that's why before he gives the commandments at all, he tells Moses first of all what he's going to do. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on his own and God says... This to Moses. Mm-hmm. Now let's follow it here at verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, This is the message you have seen what I did to the Egyptians he conquered their enemies and how I bore you on eagle's wings that is actually uh, in the passing it's just a, a very lovely picture the, the young of the eagle are in their nest for an extraordinarily long time it's around about a hundred days, it's unusual for, uh, for birds to be in the nest that long and when they start to fly they're notoriously poor at flying uh, but the eagle hovers over them and whenever she sees them floundering she, she swoops underneath them and carries them on her on her wing. And uh, in Deuteronomy later on Moses actually refers to that figure of how he says God stirred up your nest and bore you uh, on his wings as on eagle's wings. That's what, the, that's what the eagle does. He comes and says you've been long enough on the nest and he stirs the nest and when the young eaglets begin to fly he if they struggle like I say underneath he goes and he bears them up on his own wing until they learn to fly fully what a lovely picture that is of how God deals with ourselves anyway he says you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings through difficulties and failures of course failures and brought you to myself Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, but obviously you distinctively so. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and you shall be a holy nation. God says to Moses, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. In other words, before I give my law, before I give details about the place of worship and everything, he says, this is who you are, this is who you are to be. If you keep my commandments, you will be a special treasure to me above all people. That word special treasure keeps appearing in the Bible. It means, um, it's used of David's gold and silver. His special treasury. These are the jewels of which Malachi speaks, or God speaks through Malachi. They shall be mine in the day when I make up my jewels. In other words, God owns everything, but he has jewels. And his jewels, of course, are his own people. They shine with their own lustre, with their own dignity and their own beauty, but they all constitute his jewels. So if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a special treasure to me now I I hope you notice that this is conditional it's easy to miss (coughs) that but we can't miss it there's an if there There there's an if verse 5 if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be a special treasure to me of course in verse 8 the people respond and they say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We need to remember that although salvation is by grace, although salvation is guaranteed to all who believe, we must believe. And what's more, we must keep believing. There's no promise extended to unbelief, not one. <coughs> And the only promise extended to unbelief is that if it disappears and you believe, you will know God's blessing and belief gets nothing. And we really need to remember that. In other words, every relationship that God establishes with his people is dependent on faith and obedience. It's right there at the heart. That's why every Christian is marked out by obedience of life and faith in the blood of Christ to cover their weakness and their failings, without that faith and without that obedience there 's no promise from god that 's not just an old testament thing it 's a new testament thing too, like i said it 's at the heart always of god 's relationships with us. Let me take a couple of verses just to to highlight the importance of that when When God is writing to the Hebrew Christians Now notice who they are by the way These are Jews who have become Christians And of course they're familiar in their history With those who had fallen back Fallen away And God is saying to them periodically More or less every second chapter He says take care that the same is not true of you and in chapter ten, of course, he he says these and the terrifying words: "If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, now sinning willfully there means to to actually fall away from the profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not referring to an individual uh, sin in your life. It's referring to turning away from the Lord." If you do so after you receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you've decided now to reject the sacrifice that you once embraced, there isn't another one available. All that remains for you is a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God under foot, and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Notice he had come under the shelter of the blood or at least he claimed to come under the shelter of the blood but now suddenly he's trampling it underfoot and thereby insulted the spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, he says. That's the warning. And you have the same thing in the letter to the Romans. And this is the last example that I take of it. But again, the references is to Israel, uh, falling away from God and the apostle here is warning us the Gentile believers against the same thing in Romans eleven, nineteen, he says you will say that these um, Israelite branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in and he said well said That was indeed God's purpose. In other words, he did let his fear go, partly as a means to bring us in. They were broken off, Paul says, because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Now all that sounds very good. And then he says, don't be proud, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches... Israel he may not spare you either therefore consider both the goodness and the severity of God on those who fall severity towards you goodness if you continue in his goodness otherwise you also will be cut off Now it couldn't be more stark and plain than that. Whatever comfort we derive from God's promises and there's plenty comfort to be derived from them is only true if you really believe them and if you believe in him who gave them and if you demonstrate that by this kind of attitude of spirit that says whatever the Lord has spoken that I will do. So remember, friends, that our standing before God is always related to our faith and obedience, loving his law and valuing his precious blood. You see, you mustn't mustn't confine Sinai to the giving of a law. There is also the provision of sacrifice, tabernacle and priesthood. If you value one, you'll value the other. The people who really value Worship through the Lord Jesus Christ are the people who hear the law the people who recognize and see the holiness of God are the people who will run for the blood they they value both some people value the blood of Christ but they don't value the law that means that they don't value the blood of Christ some people value the law but they don't value the blood of Christ that means they don't really value the law either both both are important now then as I said the Lord is giving these two great gifts to Israel on the mountain he's giving them a law to live by that's centred on the Ten Commandments and a law to worship by which is centred on the tabernacle now I said earlier that it's important to remember in some way that the church already had these Ten Commandments one new, they all knew them they were written in their hearts A good part of the law of worship wasn't new either. They had been used ever since the days of Abel to sacrificing with blood. So the real question is, why does God come in this way, revealing himself in this way, to give the law and to give the way of worship? Well, let's confine ourselves to the law first. Paul asks in the letter to the Galatians why, he says, was the law given? There was a promise given to Abraham long ago and you would think that God would continue until the time came for that promise to be fulfilled. But lo and behold, here at Sinai, there's an intervention. As Paul says to the Romans, the law comes in alongside at Sinai. Here God does an additional thing. And to the Galatians, he says, why did God do it? Why did God come in this way with the law and Paul's answer is well he did it because of sin God comes to Mount Sinai to re-promulgate the law because of sin that only gives rise to another question in what way what was it about sin that made this necessary well first of all we can say this that he gave them the law on Mount Sinai to highlight sin its nature and its evil and he does that by revealing his own holiness and it's only when we grasp that that we begin to really understand what sin is when Paul said that did he not he says I'd never have known sin apart from the law but he said one time this commandment came to me thou shalt not covet and I knew that I was a sinner <clears throat> now that's, that's an interesting thing that Paul says we can't see that in his autobiography he, he makes the statement in the letter to the Romans but we don't see it in his autobiography I, I think what it must mean is that although Paul was convinced he was um, working out his own salvation he was convinced he was in a good standing with God he had started to have these nails and these fears before meeting the Lord Jesus Christ I wonder in fact if if his zeal in persecuting the church was trying to compensate for the fact that he was beginning to think that there were problems in his own life or else when did did the commandment come to him saying thou shalt not covet you'll notice that thou shalt not covet is a very penetrating commandment we'll see that when we come to it it goes, goes right inside coveting, am I coveting we probably felt that recently when we were thinking about coveting in connection with Gehazi last Sabbath evening. I mean, which one of us didn't feel, is it I? Now, the self-complacent Paul would not think, is it I? But, but when the law came, he suddenly saw the possibility that it was himself. That's what the law does. And God is giving the law from Mount Sinai in such a way as to highlight sin. Yes. And Israel needed it. I mean, it's quite obvious if you've been following their progression, both in Egypt, as they come out of Egypt, as they come to the bitter waters, as they come to refeed I mean, you'll have noticed the pattern. At every single stopping place, there's a turning and there's a grumbling. And they don't think that grumbling is that serious. I mean, if they did, surely they wouldn't have done it so easily again. But the Lord wants to come to come into their lives in such a way as to tell them what sin is, what it is in his sight, how abhorrent it is and how evil it is. He wants to tell them that. At the same time, because God is gracious and God is gracious, he simultaneously highlights the remedy for sin. That goes back to what I said a minute ago. Don't forget at Sinai that you don't just have a law showing sin you have a wonderful system of sacrifice, priesthood and tabernacle which shows the remedy for sin. So God is highlighting sin, highlighting his own holiness, highlighting our sin and highlighting the remedy for it in a wonderful way before the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes. So the law of life is highlighting God's holiness and our sin. The law of worship is highlighting God's mercy and forgiveness of sin. That's why, friends, the giving of the law in Mount Sinai is an act of grace on God's part. You should never think of the covenant God makes with his people in Mount Sinai as a covenant of works. It's not a covenant of works. It's, a, it's an insult to call it a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. He's deepening the understanding of the people. Deepening their understanding of his holiness, their own sin, and the remedy for that sin. And I think once you understand that, you understand what Sinai is all about. Deepening their understanding of his holiness, their sin, and how to respond to that by pleading for forgiveness and walking according to his statutes. Now, um, God still again deals with us like that. He deepens our understanding of his holiness, our sin, and how to respond to that. You'll notice that some of Christ's best-known teachings uh, remind us of that. Take the Great Commission, which we read um, In our first reading, we all know the Great Commission. Everybody knows the Great Commission. And yet, at some levels, I feel that hardly anybody knows the Great Commission. The Great Commission, all authority is given to me. These were Jesus' last words, effectively. Uh, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit... Commanding them to observe whatever things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Now the easy thing, and the common thing, is just to take that as a, as a command to go out to the gospel and to evangelize. That's very often how it's understood. But there's so much more to it than that, is there not? It's not, it's not about evangelism as, as such. It's about discipleship which is far wider than evangelism. Evangelism, as people understand it, is about getting people in the door. Uh, Discipleship is about bringing them to the Saviour and getting them to know the Lord more and more and deeper and deeper. There's a pattern to it. The Lord says first, I've got the authority and the power. I've got it in heaven and I've got it on earth. So he says, go and make disciples Of all the nations. How does that begin? Well by preaching the Lordship of Christ. And the necessity of faith in him. To be saved from your sin. And to be brought into the kingdom of heaven. For that you need to subject yourself to him. As your saviour and as your Lord. When you subject yourself. You are then baptised. You are in a new relation of discipleship he is now your master and you are the pupil and then begins the process of what? learning, teaching to observe all things that I have commanded you, you know, when, when a Christian when a person understands enough about the Lord about the reason for his death and the reason for his life When a person understands enough about how to be delivered from the curse of sin and how to be delivered into the kingdom of God, when a person understands enough about that, they yield themselves to God if the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. They yield themselves to Christ and they are converted. He is now their master. They are the pupils. That's the start. The Great Commission is saying that that life then continues by observing everything that I have commanded you. Now, a large part of the evangelical, and forget evangelical, a large part of the Reformed churches act as though that was never said, as though that was never part of the Great Commission. All you hear sometimes is, oh, well, that's an important commandment, that's not an important commandment, or these are fundamental things, oh, these are not important things, and usually the commandments that are not important are the ones that people don't like. They find uncomfortable for whatever reason it is. Oh that's that's not important, or the word that you hear all the time is that's a secondary issue. I'm alive, the amount of times I hear that's a secondary issue. Everything, you know, what's primary? People say, Well, the resurrection is primary. Okay, that's fine. Is there anything else that's primary? But the Lord didn't break things down like that. He said, Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded. All things that I have commanded. Was the Lord wasting his time when he gave the commandments? Was he wasting his time when he gave commandments regarding how to worship and how to honour him and how to conduct ourselves? Was it all a waste of time? Could the Bible just simply have said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved? If that was enough of a Bible, God would have given that. But the Bible's a big book, it's a deep book. And the New Testament itself is a big book and it's a deep book and it's full of what the Lord wants us, commands us to do. And any Christian who is a real Christian will want to know that. When Saul of Tarsus was converted, what was his first question when God came into his life? Well, his first question, uh, of course, was "Who who are you? Uh, the answer to that is I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you persecute what was the second question what will you have me to do that's the Christian's question once you know your Lord what do you want me to do because a servant wants to serve his master a servant wants to serve his master the child of God wants to know what to do And he wants the grace to do it. You can take the Sermon on the Mount as well. Again, there's a misconception out there that the Sermon on the Mount is telling us how to become Christians. It's nothing of the sort. The Sermon on the Mount is telling Christians how to live as Christians. There there is only one way to become a Christian and that's by recognising Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord and bowing yourself before him. Receiving the wonderful power of his cleansing blood and receiving his lordship in your life. That's the only way to become a Christian. But the Sermon on the Mount tells us then how to live as Christians. And that's why it's not so easy. It's easy enough to say that the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful, but boy, is it penetrating. I mean, re- read it for yourself. I mean, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read it and you feel you're under a searchlight and I'm quite sure the people who listened to it were were taken aback when they heard it about Jesus said well the rabbis have told you that you can hate your enemies and love your friends but I'm telling you that that's not what God says that's not what the law ever really said you're to love your enemies the rabbis will tell you that adultery consists in the physical act I'm telling you it's much more than that And so it goes on and on and on. So much so that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees who had ways of excusing themselves for sin, they never excused others. As Jesus said, you bind heavy burdens to put on other people's backs. You don't uh, use a finger yourself to lift any of them off. (coughs) What's more, although they cleanse the outside of the cup, The inside of the cup was full of dirt and filth. And of course the the more plain it became that becoming a Christian meant self-denial. You'll read in the scripture at various points that many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Notice, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Famously on one occasion he turned to the twelve who were left and said, Will you also go away? What was the answer? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And you know, there's a real comfort in that because even if the Sermon on the Mount eh, strips you, and it really does, you finish reading that sermon and you sometimes feel, I haven't even started. But the fact that you can say, after all that, to whom can I go? These are words eternal life. These are your words and I love them. And the life that you've set before me is a one that I've only imperfectly begun to live. But you know that the desire of my heart is to live it more and to know you better. That the holiness I see in you is not a holiness, oh it's a holiness that awes me indeed and terrifies me, but it doesn't repel me. It's a holiness that attracts me. And just as Moses was compelled to go and see what the burning bush was really all about, just as Moses himself drew near to the thick darkness where God was, so we too draw near to this God who is wonderful in holiness, fearful in praises. We draw near to him. That's a mark. That's a mark. We don't take his holiness away. We rather walk towards it. And we do so in fear and trembling. That's why Jesus said, um, we're told that a group of people believed in him and Jesus turned and said to them, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. The mark a discipleship continuing. Continuing in his word. And in the Christian life, God leads us into a deeper understanding of his holiness and how we should respond to it. And uh, there are examples of that, of course, in the Old and New Testaments. And my time has gone on. I've gone on, and I've gone on too far, and I'm actually going to leave the rest of what I have. I'm going to continue this tonight anyway. Um, Some of what I was going to say this morning, I'll I'll bring it in uh, to tonight. And we'll just... Leave it there for a moment. Let me just introduce it by saying to you that as well as deepening our understanding of God's holiness, God wants to deepen our impression of his holiness. Hence the mountain that was calm and tranquil is suddenly full of smoke and cloud and fire and quake. And all that has its own purpose, as we'll see this evening. Thanks. Call upon the name of the Lord <clears throat> Lord and gracious God we pray to remember that we are called to be a people set apart uh, your peculiar people uh, a kingdom of priests and uh, a special possession and uh, we have been called out of the power of darkness and into your own marvellous light and uh, we pray to live as those who value faith and obedience as those who mourn over their lack of faith and their frequent disobedience as so often in the Christian life it is not so much falling but the importance of rising again And your people will always rise again because they believe and because they love the Lord who loves themselves. We bless you for grace and the gracious revelations that you give of your majesty and holiness and even of our sin too. If these things prostrate us at your footstool it is good for us to be there. There is something in us that wants to sit on the throne. How vital that we learn to take your place at the footstool. The best place to be. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Let's uh, close our worship singing in uh, Psalm 97. <coughs> And from the beginning of the psalm. God reigneth. Let the earth be glad and isles rejoice each one. Every time we come to this word isles, the, the Jews used to refer to the lands beyond uh, their main land as they knew it. Uh, they knew there were far off lands across the seas, and we automatically think of ourselves, because we are referred to there, not as not as the small islands, but as being part of the islands that the Jews referred to. Dark clouds encompass, we'll see that tonight. And in right with judgment dwells his throne Fire goes before him and his foes it burns up round about, his lightnings lightened the world, earth saw and shook. Throughout Hills, even like Mount Sinai, at the presence of the Lord like wax did melt away, even at the presence of the Lord of all the earth. I say the opening four stanzas let's stand to sing.